Welcome to episode 13 of the Candlelit Tales podcast. My name is Aaron Hegarty and I'm sitting down with my sister. I'm Sarah Hegarty and it's raining. We are in the Shafis and you might hear some rain because Ireland never gets away from a bit of rain. Nope. We are the co-founders of Candlelit Tales, a storytelling troupe. We tell stories to live music and we also now record podcasts. We started off a few years, few years ago uh, telling stories live. We still do the live stuff and we passed a hat and we asked for donations. Mm-hmm. You can still do that if you want to support us, if you can basically. This is a free podcast for everybody who can't afford it. And if you can't afford it to support us, you can go to patreon.com forward slash candlelit tales. And that helps us out a load. It actually helps us just, you know, buy equipment and uh, headphones and stuff like that. And, you know, it just helps a lot just to get these little things out onto the quality that we like to get them out at. And so if you want to be able to do that, you can also just share it and be sound. That'd be great, too. Either way. This is a beauty and a special because this yeah. is, uh, you know, we're turning into summer, lads. Don't get the shorts out too quickly, but we're, you know, just to just to get us nice and ready for a great, brilliant beauty celebration. We're going to hell, and this has been requested. Midir Natain, Sarika, take her away. All right. The Story of Medir and Atain The king and queen of Brilay, Medir and Fulmnok, had a great and famous household. Medir was a great king, his queen Fulmnok was his equal in every way, and besides that she was herself a powerful druid. They were known throughout Ireland for being so well matched and so well balanced that they were chosen by innumerable families to foster their children, to raise them up with all the values of the culture, all the security of a good home, and to be an example of how a good marriage and a good household should be run. This was a great honour, and so honoured were they that at any one time, Medir and Fulmnok had three times fifty foster sons and three times fifty foster daughters in their household, although they never had children of their own. Now, one day, the king of the Tuatha Danann, the Dagda Moor, he came to them with a small problem. And that small problem was a child, a little infant boy that he had had with the river goddess, Boan. Trouble was, Boan was married to another man, and the little boy had been born in a day. A magically extended day that the Dagda had made so the two of them could dally together while her husband, Elkmar, was away hunting, suspecting nothing. But now, they had this child, this consequence, and they didn't really know what to do with him. He was younger than anybody, because he'd been born in a day, and so he was named Angus Og, the young son. And the Dagda, after racking his brains, well, he brought the child to the best parents that he knew of, Midir and Fulmnok. 
Angus was an easy child to love. The pair of them took him in and found him to be a beautiful and a winning child that they raised as if he were their own and they both doted on him and he filled up something in their marriage that they hadn't realised had been missing brought some bit of light and life and a joy to them that they hadn't known to miss Now Angus grew up as children tend to do, and Medir took him to meet his father, the Dagda. The Dagda welcomed his long-lost son in with open arms, and Medir left him to get settled and situated, as the son of a powerful man and a powerful woman, though he wasn't quite sure how that was going to be managed, what with Boan's jealous husband, Elkmar, hovering in the wings ready to take offence if he ever found out Angus's true identity. But in any case, Medir went home. Now when he went home, he noticed it. The thing that had been missing, that had been filled up by the presence of Angus Ob, that light and that laughter that wasn't there in his house, that wasn't there in his marriage. And he noticed it grow and grow because now that he'd seen it, he couldn't unsee it. And every day he looked at Fulmnock and he wondered when the love for her had left his heart. He wondered, had he ever loved her really? Or had he just been impressed by her power and her beauty? And these doubts grew on him and the space between him and his wife grew wider and colder with every passing day until the day came that Medir decided to do something about it. And what he decided to do was leave and go and visit his foster son Angus Oak. He left Fumnock in charge of their three times fifty foster sons and their three times fifty foster daughters and all their lands and all their households and all their kine and all their cattle. He dressed himself very carefully in his finest armour, his cloak of green and his five-pointed spear by his side and he rode out on a white horse to visit. He arrived at Bruna Boynia where Angus Og then lived at Samhain, a time of the year when it was forbidden to carry weapons, when the laws were strange and different even for those who lived in the other world. Now, the pair of them came out to the side of the hill to watch a game of hurling that was happening in the valley below them, and Medir pointed out to Angus that there was a man standing on the hillside opposite them glaring over at Angus Oak as if he hated him. And Angus said, well, yeah, <laughs> that would be Elkmar, my mother's husband. You see, Bruna Boynia had been Elkmar's house, and with the help of the Dagda, Angus Oak had tricked him out of it. No, it was what his mother Boan wanted for him, but... She couldn't exactly tell Elkmar that. So Elkmar was holding on to a bit of a grudge. And then a fight broke out in the hurling match in the valley below and Angus Og made to go down and settle it. But 
Medir noticed a strange glint in the eye of Elkmar over there on the hill opposite, and he stopped him and said, I'll go down, and you stay here. I don't trust this. Medir waded into the fight and tried to pacify it, but he was set upon by these youths who had been told what to do by Elkmar himself. He was struck in the side of the head with a hurl so hard that his eye was knocked out of his skull. Now this was a terrible wound. More terrible than just the wound itself was the meaning of the wound, because in those days no man could be a king if he was in any way disfigured or deficient in body. And Medir was the king of Brilay. He stood to lose everything. He was absolutely livid. Now Angus was distraught. Angus Og brought Medir back up to Brunaboynia, called in the best surgeons in the land, and they managed to save Medir's eye to get it back into his head, to get it healthy again, so that he would not lose his kingship. But Medir was still furious. And he turned to his foster son and he said, you need to make this up to me. You need to pay me restitution because this happened in your household when I was protecting you. And Angus said he would do anything for his foster father. Medir asked him for a new chariot and that was easily got. And he asked him for a new pair of horses and that was easily got as well. And then he turned to Angus Og and he said, What I really want, the thing that will make this all better, I want you to find me the most beautiful woman in Ireland. That last one was a tall order. Angus Og searched far and wide until he found the most beautiful woman in Ireland, a woman named Etaine. Now she was a king's daughter in Ulster and she was something else to look at. She was beautiful beyond any concept of beauty that he had ever come across before. And Angus went to her and he asked her if she would come with him to Brunaboynia and take up residence there with Medir for a year. And Etain looked at him and said, Now, why would I want to do a thing like that? She pointed out to him that her beauty and her status were two things that she had that she could put in the service of her people that her best hope for them was to make a good match in marriage, to bring the power of a great king to their service, to bring them a huge bride price for her honor. And by going with him to stay with Medir for a year, her honor stood to take a bit of a hit. But Angus begged and Angus pleaded, and Angus was such a lovable young man, being a god of love, that Etain found it difficult to say no to him. And so she thought about it, and she said, okay, so I won't go with you 
lest it devalue me in the eyes of one who might marry me. So what you need to do is make up for any loss in value that might happen to me and to my reputation. So here's what you're going to do. You are going to clear three plains and plant them all. And you are going to divert three rivers so that they can irrigate those plains for the benefit of my people. And you are going to fetch me my weight in gold as a bride price. And if you do these things, then I will go with you. Angus Og, being Angus Og, he managed these tasks in the twinkling of an eye. And he brought Etain back to Brunabonia to meet Medir. Medir was smitten the moment he saw Etain. And Etain, somewhat to her surprise, found herself falling for the proud king of Brilay in her turn. They lingered in Brunabonia together for a year, living in bliss and in harmony, and Angus was so delighted to see his foster father well and happy once again. At the end of that year, Midir realised that he had been a long time away from his home, and he offered Etain a place in his household. She told him that she would not be put beneath anyone else in his household. She would marry him, but she'd be second fiddle to no other woman, and Medir thought that was absolutely fine. And so, with nary a word sent ahead to his wife, Fumnok, who'd been holding down the fort at home for all this time, Medir brought Etain back to his house at Brilay. Now, it was not unheard of for a man to have two wives in those days, or a woman to have two husbands, but Fumnok was a little taken aback when her husband brought this woman into her household unannounced, without a by your leave. But she was prepared to welcome Etain in, as long as she knew her place. And so, she brought them inside, poured them each a drink, greeted them cordially, if a little cautiously, and watched to see what this woman would do. Etain took a look at Fumnok, and she took a long look around the hall of Medir, and she saw the seat of Medir there at the top table, and she saw beside it the seat that belonged to his wife. And without a moment's pause, she went and sat herself at the head of the table, right beside Medir. Now Fumnok took that for the insult that it most certainly was. It might be that Medir had forgotten that she was a druid, or it might be that he never thought that she would turn her power against him. But Fumnok's rage rose up in her like a live thing and she belched it out with a word of power and it flew to Etain sitting there so pretty in her chair and when it hit her Etain was gone and there was nothing but a rain cloud in her place. You or I would have died of a spell like that but Etain was one of the two Adedanon as well and she was not without power of her own. She clung to life as the rain cloud rained into a little puddle on the floor, the puddle evaporated 
and a little worm crawled out and turned into a fly. The fly Etain buzzed up to Madir and fluttered and flew around his head and much to Fumnok's disgust, Madir was not repelled that his beloved had become such a loathsome, lowly creature. He cooed at the fly as if it were something beautiful and wondrous. He exclaimed over the beautiful iridescent colours on its body. He said that the buzzing of its wings sounded like the sweetest of music. Could she not hear? Could she not smell the fragrance that wafted from the fly? She could not. But he could. And from that day on there was nowhere Midir went without the fly Etain perched on his shoulder and buzzing about his head, while Fumnok stewed on her rage. It was one thing to be put aside for a girl of surpassing beauty, but it was another thing to be ignored in favour of a fly, and so her anger rose up within her again, but this time it took a different form, more potent, more destructive and when it came out of her this time it came out in a spell that she cast and called down on the fly Etain a great and powerful storm the winds of that storm picked up the fly and blew her and buffeted her all around Ireland she was helpless before it driven by the winds and the rain she was blown on the winds of Brumnock's rage all the way to Brunaboynia, and Angus Og, he recognised the fly as the woman attained. He caught her, rescued her from the storm and the tempest, and locked her in a little glass bower that he filled with flowers of every kind so that she would be happy and comfortable, as a fly could be. And then Angus Og sent for Medir to come and fetch her. But Fulmnuk came faster. She changed herself into a serpent, unlatched the glass bower, and called in her storm to blow Etain away. When Midir arrived, he found Etain was carried off beyond his power to save her, and Fulmnuk triumphant. Enraged, Midir attacked his wife. He had Angus Og hold down the only mother he had ever known, while he, Midir, cut her head from her shoulders. But Etain was still beyond his reach. The storm of Fulmnok's rage did not die with her. If anything, it grew stronger. It blew the fly Etain from one side of the country to another, whirled her around and up and down and over and under. She was befuddled and bewildered and battered and blown and there was nothing she could do but surrender. Time passed. So much time that it lost all meaning. And then one day, she was blown in through the window of a feasting hall. A 
and so exhausted was the fly attain that she could not even cling to the roof beams of that feasting hall. She lost her grip and fell with a tiny splash into the goblet of wine on the table below her. The mortal queen of that hall drank off her goblet of wine in one swallow, swallowing down the fly attain. And then she turned to her husband and said, I do believe I am with child. Sure enough, nine months later, she gave birth to a most beautiful girl child, whom she named Etain, for no reason that she could put into words. The mortal girl Etain grew up and looked just as she had done in her previous life, as a radiantly beautiful woman of the Tua de Danan, but she had no memory of her life as one of the she, no memory of Medir or Fumnok, or even her wretched existence as a fly blown about by that storm. Etain grew up to be a beautiful young woman who had a particularly elegant way of pouring wine and word of her beauty and her grace spread far and wide. She received proposals of marriage from kings and sons of kings, but her heart was not warmed by any of them. Now at that time, the High King of Ireland, Ochi Aram, was in want of a wife, for it was not thought to be right for a king to be without a queen in those days. And he decided that if he had to have a queen, he would have only the most beautiful woman in Ireland, and it was known that that meant Etain. For her part, Etain was no more in love with Ochiaram than she was with any of her other suitors, but she accepted his offer because it meant becoming the Queen of Ireland, and she couldn't think of a reason not to. She and Ochiaram were happy enough together, for a time. The only blight on their marriage was that the king's brother Oliel fell desperately ill shortly after Etain came to live in Tara. So ill was his brother Oliel that Ochi Aram was tempted to put off his tour of Ireland that he had to make every year in case his condition might worsen. But Etain offered to stay behind and look after him while Ochi Aram was gone. Almost as soon as he was out of the house, Oliel asked to speak to Etain alone, sending away all the servants and attendants, all the doctors and healers and clerics that were trying their best to cure him of this unknown disease. He confessed to her that he was sick for the love of her and that if he could not be with her, he was going to die. This left Etain with a bit of a dilemma. She did not want to be the cause of her brother-in-law's death. But at the same time, she didn't think her husband would be terribly happy if she slept with his brother. So she had to ponder this for a little while. She thought it over 
And then she told Oliel that she would meet him outside of Tara the following day for a tryst. She thought that at least if she met him outside of Tara, she wouldn't be betraying Oki Aram in his own house, and so it wouldn't be quite as bad. At this news, Oliel leapt out of bed, hale and hearty once more, and went singing through the hallways. The following day, Etain waited in the appointed place for Oliel to come, already half regretting her choice. She saw her brother-in-law come towards her, and then as he approached, she saw him change. A light seemed to glow from his features, and then it was not Oliel who stood before her at all, but a much more beautiful looking man, tall and handsome and shining, with a green cloak around his shoulders and a five-pointed spear in his hand. Midir, for it was indeed he, told Etain how he had been searching for her all this time and begged her to come back to the other world with him. She had been lost to him for hundreds of years. In the time she had been away, lost in that terrible storm, Ireland had fallen to new rulers, to mortal men, and the two of the Danann had gone underneath the hills, to the rivers and the waterways and the wilds, and he wanted to bring her back there to that land of eternal youth, where there was no pain, no sickness, no death even any more. And Etain had no idea who he was. Having no memory of her life in the other world, she categorically refused to go anywhere with this complete stranger. Besides which, she was in no way impressed with the trick he had pulled on her to get her outside the walls of Tara to approach her in this way. He'd caused her a great deal of suffering and distress, and she was not best pleased with him. And so Medir changed tack and went a little bit more softly. And rather than proposing that he take her away for all of eternity, he asked if she might consider giving him a little kiss, which Etain also refused. Midir begged and pleaded with Etain to kiss him just once because he knew in his heart of hearts that if she kissed him, if her lips and his touched, he was sure that all of her love for him would come back, all of her memory of the other world would come back, and she'd be his again. But Etain was having absolutely none of it. Given that he had manipulated her into betraying her husband, she told him that she would only kiss him if he could get permission from her husband. And Etain knew well that that would never happen. Ochiaram was a proud man and a jealous one too possessive of his beautiful wife. And with that left on Midir's plate, she went back to Tara and forgot about the whole thing. Or tried to, anyway. 
When Ochi Aram came back from his tour of Ireland, she very firmly told him absolutely nothing about how his brother Oliel had been magically cured of whatever disease he'd had, that nobody knew what it was even now, and she certainly didn't tell him about the beautiful stranger who wanted to whisk her away to the other world for all eternity, and claimed to have been in love with her in a past life. It seemed better that way. Ochi Aram had not been back in Tara for very long when a beautiful man in a green cloak turned up at the gates. Now, recognising from his dress and his face that this man was possibly one of the Tua de Danan, Ochi Aram greeted him with great respect and deference and made him welcome. The stranger asked to play a game of chess. They played, and Ochi Aram won easily. The stranger suggested that they make a wager, and Okiaram bet the finest horses that either of them could produce. And they played again, and again, Okiaram won. Knowing now that he was in possession of two horses of the two of the Danan, he was excited to play again. In his excitement, Okiaram suggested they play for higher stakes. The winner could ask the loser for any favour he desired. His mind was full of the things that he would ask this magical man to do, and Ochi Aram was taken aback when the stranger beat him in only a couple of moves. He was even more taken aback when the stranger asked his forfeit for Ochi Aram to allow him to kiss his wife. Akiharam was stumped, but he asked the stranger for a month's grace to get used to the idea. Midir, for it was of course he, left promising to return for his winnings in a month's time, and Akiharam spent all of that month assembling his army, training them and equipping them and making them ready to repel any invasion. On the day that Medir was to return, he had the army surround Tara, man the walls, man the courtyards, bristling with shield and spear and sword, while he and his wife Etain stayed inside the feasting hall, surrounded by guards, row on row, all facing outwards with their spears at the ready. And so prepared he waited. But the stranger did not come to his gate. Instead, there was a bright light, and all of a sudden Medir was standing there before the two of them inside the circle of the soldiers, and he put out his hand to attain, and he kissed her. And she remembered. She remembered everything. Her great love for Medir, the revenge of his wife. And as she kissed him, the two of them rose up into the air and disappeared into the other world, never to be seen again. Now it is here that the tale is ended, though it is not the end of this tale, and if you like a happy ending, it's best to stop listening now. Ochi Aram was not pleased to lose his wife, Etain. For seven years he hunted for her high and low and all over Ireland, and the form of his hunt was to dig up the she-mounds of the Tuatha Danann and destroy them, 
looking for a passage to the other world, looking for Attain and the man who had stolen her from him. At the end of seven years, Midir appeared before Ochiarum over the latest she-mound that he was in the process of destroying and told him that he really needed to knock this off. Midir offered Ochiarum one chance to win Etain back. He snapped his fingers and all of a sudden standing there on the hillside were 50 women and all of them identical and all of them Etain. Midir told Ochiarum that if he could pick his wife out of that group of women, he would never see Midir again. He'd be able to take her back home and all would be as it had been. Now Oki Aram knew by now the tricks of Midir, and so he knew he could not choose Etain by her looks, because there would be no difference in their looks. And so he said, all right, all right. Have them all pour wine, because Etain had that way of pouring wine and he knew he would know it anywhere. And sure enough, he recognized Etain by her pour, he stopped the test at that one, and he brought her back to Tara with him. Now, Etain seemed somewhat changed by her time in the other world. She seemed to have no memory of Tara, no memory of Ochiarum at all. But gradually, she got used to the idea, got used to her new place, got used to her husband and her household, and she began to settle in. And then they were happy again, for a while. A year and a day after he had gotten her back from the other world, Aki Aram was pacing the walls of Tara. His wife, Etain, was in labour with their first child and he was on tenterhooks. And it did not help his mood one bit when out of a shaft of light stepped Midir his old rival. Now Oki Aram was ready to throw him out, said, you promised I would never see you again. And Medir said, oh yes, I promised you would never see me again if you chose your wife. But you see, you didn't choose your wife. When she came with me to the other world, your wife, Etain, was pregnant with your child. A daughter she gave birth to in the other world, where time moves so differently. You chose a girl called Etain, for we named her after her mother. She grew up to look just like her mother. And besides that, she has her mother's way of pouring wine. Whoa. All right. So you've just listened to one of the well-known great romantic love stories of Irish mythology. <laughs> With yeah. the alternative ending. Well, I mean, it's not so much the alternative ending as it is the the kind of post-credit scene 
you know, like that usually gets oh, left out. <laughs> well, really, yeah. Do you, you know, do you wonder why it usually gets well, left out? It's one of the stories that I remember from primary school, of, and the the butterfly stuck with me is like, you know, the and sometimes it's a f- uh, a bee or a fly or whatever it can be like. And that she gets turned into and it's like, oh, this lovely, beautiful thing that always lasts and it always lasts in love and it's lovely. and it's Yeah, he's in love with the essence of her, not just the appearance of her. I've always had the alternative theory that he likes her better when she can't talk. <laughs> not a bit. But, but I'm, I'm also... <laughs> Cynical? Uh, massively, yeah. Uh, and I, I've never had it. I've never had an enormous amount of sympathy with Madeir. I have yeah, to say. It's not... It doesn't really get painted in the best light, I guess... A, because Fumnuk is pretty righteous and pretty spot on in how she deals with the whole situation. Well, you have, you could, okay, no, you have a lot of hang on. You have She's a lot of not righteous in how she deals with the situation because she does what a lot of people in that situation do and she scapegoats the outsider. Her quarrel is with her husband. Yeah, okay, fair But enough. she doesn't fight with her husband. She fights with the other woman. Yeah, no, that's, that's Which is point. a kind of a classical thing to do. I think she's well within her rights to be monumentally pissed off Mm -hmm. Uh, but it it is that thing of like she directs her rage at it's it's this whole thing with scapegoating that when people are very are feeling very angry or betrayed we tend to subconsciously find the person who it's least costly to us to blame yeah so if if you're in a marriage relationship and there's an infidelity as is the case in this story it is less less costly for the betrayed person to blame the outsider because that way you can you have a potential of maintaining the marriage yeah, whereas yeah. if you put the blame at, on the shoulders of the spouse who betrayed you you're kind of like killing the relationship then do you know and it's, it's kind of hard to come back from it's kind of hard to come back from anyway um, but yeah she does she does a very uh, common thing I think that people do well I've always remembered when we were down in um, Clare Island and we heard a retelling of that story. Yeah. And it was told from, uh, from we're down for the Bard School of Mythology, which is a fantastic thing every year out in Clare Island. And the retelling was from Fumnuk's perspective. And oh, yeah. Karina ah, Tynan's retellings. Ah, uh, she's got a wonderful website about them, actually, which we'll link in the show notes. Yeah. She does some fantastic retellings of these myths from, usually from the female perspective. Uh, she takes the women who are often vilified and gives them a voice. Uh, she's also, we, we looked at that myth again uh, this past summer as well, uh, in 2018, just at Madeira Natane. Yeah. Um, well, well, and she did an extraordinary retelling from the point of view of the daughter at Tain. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, I missed it this year. Oh, wow. You did. Um, it was amazing. So, like, yeah, you can find these kind of voices in there as well. And uh, that always restructured the, or, you know, made me look look at and examine the story a little bit differently because I had heard it as a love story between Medeir and between Etain mm-hmm. and kind of forgotten about Fumnuk wasn't that important you know I was just side, side character it was fine yeah and, and like, she's oh. also she's so easy to vilify as the jealous bitch wife yeah. do you know what I mean my wife doesn't understand me baby but you do like it's it, that's what I think is really interesting to me about this story in its more complete form uh, it's not very nice like you have these lovers who are swept away by their their love for one another sure and they have a happy ending together sure but the trail of destruction 
that they create in doing that. Like, I mean, we've talked about this story before in terms of like, you know, uh, kind of marriage of convenience versus marriage of passion that like totally, yeah. both Midir and mortal attain are in kind of, you know, pretty well functioning, but pretty passionless marriages. Yeah. And I've always kind of big that up as like, you know, people do that because it's a societal convenience and it's a thing that you're supposed to do and it works and it's easier to pay a mortgage and get a house together and cohabit and coexist and co-depend on one another. And it just feels very bland and grey and you, we sh- you forget about the, the longing and the lust and the love and the, and the, the spark, which can be very romanticised. <laughs> I tend to anyway. It's, well, it's, it's massively romanticised, but I think this is one of the really interesting things about marriage. Marriage, you know up to the modern era was not a romantic institution mm. it was a business institution like most marriages were arranged go back to our grandparents generation in Ireland like not even that long ago Yeah, you got married because of the land you got married because of family alliances it was not a romantic proposition and people were not supposed to get married for romantic reasons and they didn't because practicality superseded that because if you need to worry about keeping a roof over your head that has to come before romance and passion. Does it though? Well, like, <laughs> I, think that's the re- I think that's the really interesting thing of the Madeira Natane thing is yeah. like how it's a real, for me, it's a real, really interesting story that very much contains the shadow side of romantic love. Well, of course, like uh, as you talk, we were just talking about the uh, love as psychosis element of like being yeah. passionately, hugely in love with someone is like being in a psychosis. It's a it's a form of psychosis. It's called like um, the word for it is limerence when you're when you're in that first blush of love with somebody, like in the early stages of a relationship when you're very like your brain is full of the, all these hormones, you're getting flooded with endorphins. It is not a state that lasts for a very long time. It lasts, I think, six months to a year, max. Um, and it's it is akin to psychosis. Like that's why people in heartbreak do crazy shit like you get otherwise sane people who start fucking driving past their ex's house at night to see her they home and like yeah, pining yeah. after them and freaking out if they run into them in the street and like just displaying behaviour that is wildly irrational and out of character because that's what's happening to you when you're in love well like and that's kind of where I kind of you know tend to fall on like the side of almost sympathy with Midir you know like you're like okay he just he got struck he got unbelievably paralysed by this beauty and like could only do one thing could only focus on her even if she was only whispering in his ear as a butterfly and that's like all the charming elements and and then you go down the road well okay that's that lasted for hundreds of years and he kept on looking for her and that was all lovely and he took her away to the other world and then oh no not the ending oh no don't do that yeah (laughs) But like he doesn't It's not like he meets her Under romantic circumstances Like he gets injured And he demands her As a price From Angus Oak Because of the insult That was done him For losing his eye You know what I mean Like he's, it, it's not He's not that sweet I mean I, I think as, as any As any story Is ever told There's a portion Of like The, the story that remains true Or the story ingredients There's a part of the storyteller who then puts it through their little kind of scope, and then there's the part of the listener who who takes it and and, and, and you know d- yeah. dissects it and in, interprets their own way. And I think 
you'll all, there'll always be differences and and kind of different ways of fracturing out stories and finding different meanings of it. And so you're just you're just massively trying to justify why you have sympathy with Madeira now. <laughs> yeah, kinda. Well, well, but I, he got swept away by the passion. I mean, but he was really bored. But his life was kind of dull sometimes. <laughs> oh, he was he's Mister Fucking Midlife Crisis. Like I'm sorry. He also he's also living in a culture where like it's it's fine to have a second spouse. Like that's some of Madeira's behavior is really, um, this is this is where the kind of judgment comes in. It's so yeah. it's so ill judged. Like he knows Fumnuk, he knows what she's like. He knows she's a druid's daughter. He knows she's a queen. He knows she's got a lot of pride. But then and her then, jealousy didn't. Well, work. he didn't. Yeah, but he also didn't treat her with any respect. No, there. he didn't. No. Like not any respect. He could have. Like that's the thing. He could have handled this very differently. So what about Etain then? Well, I'm not finished on Madeira yet. I have to yell about Madeira no, a little I'm bit more. Steer you because he's, you know, we get onto the epilogue there and, and he's his behaviour is absolutely horrific. Horrific, yeah. You know, he, he gets to this level of vindictiveness. Don't forget as well that he cuts off Fumnuk's head. Yeah, with Angus Ob, the guy uh, in love who's very happy to very, very pro this whole affair is Angus. But like, yeah, they, they cut her head off. But I think it's interesting to call Angus Hogue the god of love, you know, because then like, and he's happy in the destruction, the chaos, you know, like if that's well, kind of what love is. If he's the god of that kind of psychosis, then yeah. then sure. I mean, he's also, you know, he crops up in Dermot and Gronia as well as being somebody who's like, oh, you're being hunted by the Fianna because you ran away together. Fucking brilliant. Here's how you get away from them. Like, you know, he's he's there is a certain element of that kind of trickster type to Angus Ogre, I think, in that he quite likes or he, he seems to kind of encourage those kinds of destructive totally. passions, you know, whereas I think the Madeira and Atain story is very kind of, yeah, it's it, it's kind of showing you that, yeah, you can go off and be with the one you love and, and blow up your life to do it. But here is your blown up life. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I guess, like, what I mean about, like, and what about Athene is, like, she also, allows, she gets swept away, kind of she falls does. into that chaos, falls into the yes, never mind that previous life of mine, mm. uh, at the mortal Athene, I mean, and, and goes back to the other world and goes back to the, this blissful, happy ever after. And with her, she allows her child, her daughter, yeah. who must look very like her. Well, like, that's a really interesting thing in the telling as well, is that you've got all of these absences around Etain. Like, all of the kind of bits about what she had to say about this or that or the other are kind of removed. And there's whole portions of this where she is very literally silenced. Like, she's turned into a butterfly. Now, there's a detail that, that I found only this year when I was researching it, that, like, when she comes into Fumnuk's house, she sits in Fumnuk's chair. Like, she sits in the chair at the head of the table. And, like, that's the thing that makes Fumnuk go off on her. Um, and I think that's an interesting... Like, I like including that detail because it gives her a little bit of characterization. Whereas, actually, in the myth, she's very light on characterization. She's beautiful. And she's kind of objectified in, in most of the story. Mm -hmm. She's not a very active presence. So, yeah, there's there's all this kind of space around Etain where we don't hear her reactions. Mm. We don't see what she says. And I think that that's, I don't know, it's weird and it's, it's interesting. And it's 
there was probably a version before where maybe she had a little bit more agency. Maybe, and it wasn't written down, but I think that goes back to the, like, the reason there aren't many good Irish love stories. <laughs> like, we're too ingrained in the in the seasons in Ireland, we're too ingrained in the, 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 the I don't know, the, the yin and the yang, the seeing the, the good and the bad, and like seeing that something good can't just be good, and so you have yeah. to give an alternative ending, slash kind of the opposite side, the the yeah. other side that is spear you know it's just like not always good even when you think well, it's good yeah nothing is nothing is fully good or fully bad I think that's a real like we've talked about this before the 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 fact that Irish mythology kind of resists this good bad dichotomy and that I really appreciate that about it absolutely um, and yeah I think this is definitely another example of like you can read this as being a good happy story especially if you leave out a couple of bits and make it all safe for the giddies. Or you can read this as this, like, <laughs> this is the incredible destructive power of romantic love. Handle with care, lads. You know? Handle with care. That's kind of the, that's the thing you need to take away from this. This Beautiness special, I guess, as we rein in the, the summer months. We just experienced Beautiness, so the Celtic calendar is ticking along. We're into the light half of the year. Uh, saying the way to the darkness eating as much as we can and feasting and frolicking and falling in love and leaving chaos behind us it's <laughs> basically what we do right well it's what you do <laughs> no 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 past that past that anyway um, I hope all of you lovers out there are having a great time and till next uh, time yeah well we should say Bielsen is a fire festival so you know later you up lads you play with fireman Keep her lit. <laughs> Keep her candle lit. This podcast was produced and edited by Oshin Ryan, and the music was by Oshin Ryan. Thank you to all of you who help us out in Candlelit Tales. We really couldn't do this without you. There's too many of you to name, but we love yous. Uh, if you want to support this podcast, you can share it with your friends. You can follow us on social media. We use hashtag Candlelit Tales podcast, and you can support us directly by becoming a patron on Patreon. Patreon? I never know how to say that. Anything you can spare will really help us out and we have some fantastic rewards coming. Uh, we'd love you to get in touch. You can email us your comments, questions, stories. Info at candlelittales.ie is the email address. Also, if you want to send us a request for a story that you'd like to hear and maybe tell us why you'd like to hear it, we will uh, mention you in a future podcast when we do it. Uh if you'd like to book a live Candlelit Tales show, you can contact us on bookings at candlelittales.ie. Uh, we also do a number of live shows around the place. So if you follow us on Facebook or Instagram, you'll get plenty of notification about when, when those things are going on. And you can keep up to date with absolutely everything we're doing at our website, candlelittales.ie. You. <laughs>